Psalm 94. And in the providence of God, I had planned to preach on this about three weeks ago. Actually, I practiced a little bit, I guess, not to minimize what I did at Grace Community last week, but I preached it last Sunday. So I've gotten a warm-up. But I want you to be in Psalm 94. Now, we're going to have to have, it's going to look like this is a message is in two parts, but it really isn't. It's all one bolt of cloth. But the very first thing I want to do before we read the passage, we're going to read it, and I'm going to comment on it. I want to just alert you to what many of you already know, since we have given a lot of time through the years to the Psalms. So just uh, several thoughts quickly about the book of Psalms. I know you know about Psalms. It's the place where it's a refuge, isn't it? <laughs> we, can't, we can't find words for our agony or whatever emotional cycle we're going through. We can find that emotional pattern somewhere in the Psalms. The Psalms are a vital part of the story of the Bible. What is that story? What is the big story? It's the kingdom of God. And that God will bring his kingdom to this earth. That's the big story. And the Psalms fits into this. It's the, the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, finds its consummation in the Messiah King. You remember that. It'll help you pull a lot of things together, whether you're reading in Leviticus or you're reading in Revelation. And the Psalms, they have a special place in this mural, if you will, the story of redemption. It's a place of intimacy where you find a divine human encounter, unparalleled in any other part of the Bible. One writer said that it's a kind of literary sanctuary in the Scriptures. You watch this very intimate interaction between God and the psalmist. Now, when you interpret the Psalms, that's a study all its own. And by the way, the class in hermeneutics, Frank's teaching that this morning. And uh, there's, there's a class for everyone, and that class on how to interpret the Bible. I guess Frank, somewhere along the line, will talk about this. You have, we have the, what uh, are called the genre. There, that's just a nice fancy word, French word for kinds or types. And Psalms is a kind of literature in the Bible, and it has to be respected and treated in that way. And you have to remember that there's a great distance in time from when the time the Psalms were written in today. Just to stretch your mind a little on this, just imagine that it's something that is written today and it is read in the year 5,500. 5,500. For those who may be still a little sleepy, this is 2016. (laughs) And that, think of that vast period of time. Well, that's the distance in time from when the Psalms were written to today. There's a culture distance. There's a theological distance. Many fail on this and fall all over this point when you come to study the Psalms of the Old Testament. Psalms, they were written during the theocracy. That's a unique period in history. God ruling his king and his surrogates, the kings in Israel, the monarchy. You've got to keep that in mind when you come. And I'm saying that because I know what's in Psalm 94 and the other Psalms, and it's especially important to have that sense about it. 
Now, with that said, there is a kind of psalm within the psalms. They're divided up in different ways, but many recognize that mass, a great majority of the psalms are called lament psalms. And lament psalms have a pattern to them. There's a complaint. There's something that's going on that's just painful. It's excruciating. The psalmist will often feel like he's in a box canyon of some sort, personally or nationally. And you can find there's this plea to God, help! Complaints, confession of sin, confidence in God's response, a hymn or a blessing. You, actually, there are about seven elements. You, don't, you rarely find them all together, but they are characteristically, many of them are in these lament psalms. And then there are imprecatory psalms. Are you familiar with this language? You know what an imprecation is? That's a curse. And if you've been reading through the Bible, as we have that pre- uh, prepared for you to do so, We've been reading in the latter part of the book of Psalms. I've just been taken back again as I read Psalm 137, 38, 39. These imprecations, Psalm 31, 39, it just blows your hat in the creek when you see with this calling down God's judgment on whose enemies? Whose enemies? God's enemies. They're imprecations. Now, why am I telling you this? Because there's some of this in Psalm 94, and I'm trying to get you settled so that you won't be, so you won't be unduly alarmed when you see it. And so these imprecatory psalms, I do not have time to go through the hermeneutics of imprecatory psalms. I'll leave that up to Frank when he gets to that point in hermeneutics. But it's just to remember this, that calling down these curses, calling down this judgment on God's enemies, took place within the theocracy. To come against the king, to come against David, was to come against God. And we, there's no system of government today where we could, we could find a direct parallel to that. And so you find David. Now, by the way, David loved his enemies. But he had some pretty hard things to say. And he was a man who loved justice. He was a man who was just, his soul was enraptured with the holiness of God. That God is other than we are. Doesn't mean that he was just pure. That's part of holiness. But he is separate from us. He is not like we are. And great, and his greatness, goodness. And David, who was just enthralled with God. And so that's why... you. Got to be careful here. But uh, you say when David first makes his appearance on the scene and he hears Goliath taunting Israel, cursing Israel, the God of Israel. And David just said, you're not going to do that on my watch. And he goes out and takes care of business. Why? Not because he had some personal vendetta that Goliath had the audacity to come up against the God of the universe, the God of Israel. That's just the way David thought. All right. So, uh, more about this in in an uh, application way. How do you take these imprecations and how do you use them today? Uh, But I will tell you this briefly. Then we we will start reading Psalm 94. These imprecations where you find the psalmist saying, God, judge them. Give it to them. That... um, you will need to pause and reflect a little bit again 
on the difference between the Old Testament understanding of the cross and the way we see the cross. I racked my brain to try to get some kind of little feeble illustration to get this across without, on the one hand, minimizing the fact that Old Testament believers, they had some anticipation of a coming Messiah King, but on the other hand, they didn't. Well, just this, I'll be brief. You know what field of vision is. We don't even have to have a camera to illustrate it. Is when you're standing and talking with someone, you may be standing here and the person you're talking to is standing right there, and so you're looking at them. And just practice, don't practice it now, but uh, when you, you look at them, you're looking right at them. Now, you are aware of faces and people back there, if you really concentrate on them, unless you're just, you know, being rude. You're concentrating on them. You're looking right in their face. And you know that there is something in that it's a depth of field that you, you're not there. You know, these, when the psalmist prayed these imprecations, there was in the foreground the, the presence of evil. Think, all the nations were just ruled by gods and goddesses. I mean, the world's not like it was then. And it was these systems, these nations infested with demonic powers. And evil was just so raw and vicious and right there, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. There was not a nation on the planet that had in God we trust on their coinage. No Reformation heritage. No Bible heritage. And that's where the psalmist was. He's up against it. And so you can see one thing. Lord, do something. Do something. You've got to get them, Lord. But then the cross. Ah, we move from foreground to background the cross. And now we pray and live and think and serve and minister and view the coming of the cross. I have more to say about that at the conclusion. So in deference to the speaker, I'm going to hold that off to the end. But will you keep that? You hold that. That's very important. Now let's look at Psalm 94. We're going to read it. Follow with me. I'm going to make some comments. And I, I need to do it this way because it's going to put us, help us get on a little faster track when we go through the psalm. And I give you, the, you have an outline there in your, in your handout. It'll be on the screen. But let me just now alert you to something with this psalm. First of all, you're looking at it. You notice that Psalm 94 is preceded by Psalm 93. Ah, depth of thought there. 93. And then Psalms 95 to 100. You won't look there now. But it's sitting. This Psalm is sitting by divine guidance right in the middle of Psalms that are saturated with praise to the King. God is the King. Ah, they're pretender kings, but no king like God. And that's the way Psalm 93 is. Praise to the king. And then Psalms 95 to 100. And then here sits Psalm 94. Interesting. So this, this psalm, here it is. Let's proceed and read and take note. He says, oh, one other thing here. Now, you know, ladies, when you go shopping... Uh, I live with a lady who occasionally I'll go shopping with her. 
And she's got a technique when she goes through the women's clothes department. She likes to feel the fabrics. You, you do that. You know, you walk by something and you're not sure if you want to stop and you just you do that. You feel it. <laughs> okay. What we have to do here is when we come to the Psalms, any Psalm, we want to get a feel for the texture of it. This is not random poetry. Like you and I might sit out and write out a little something, whatever impulsively comes up to us. There is a layout here, an arrangement, an arrangement of thought. I'll show you. Before I read it, I'll just show you. This will, believe me, this will help the message, the, the other part of the message a little bit more. In verses 1 and 2, we would just use the A, the letter A. Those two verses sit there together. In verses 3 to 7, that unit of thought, another stanza, B. You following me? You can write it in your Bible. A, verses 1 and 2. B, verses 3 to 7. Then, verses, verses uh, 11, yeah, 8 through 11. C. 8 through 11. C. Now, okay, you say, oh, A, B, C, that's easy. Now watch this. In verses 12 through 15, another C. Because those verses, that stanza corresponds to the preceding stanza. They, they relate closely together. Then we come back out to another B. You with me? We go in, and we're coming back out. And B, verses 16 to 21. Because that corresponds to verses 3 to 7. There's a corresponding thought relationship there. Then when we get down to verse 22, verses 22 and 23, we have A again. Because these two verses correspond to the opening two verses. A conclusion, an envelope, if you will. All right, do you have that? All right, now let's read it. You think, we're ever going to get into Psalm 94? Yeah, but we've got to do a little mental hermeneutical calisthenics to it. All right, now follow. O Lord, God of vengeance, begins with that word Yahweh, the covenant name for God, people in relationship to God the way Israel was, in a unique way. O God of vengeance, shine forth. Now, right away, you notice that you're familiar with this concept of parallelism. Saying the same thing, but he's actually adding something. And what you're going to see develop here is a, another kind of parallelism that you have. Oh, I've said parallelism. You say, what's that? You understand that that's the way in which Hebrew poetry was written. We didn't so much rhyme words, though you can find some of that. But you find a rhyme and a rhythm of thought. And in the case, this one, you're going to see a, what is called a stair-like parallelism. He's making his point, but he, he takes a step and he adds something. Takes another step, adds something. Takes another step and then hits it out of the park. That's the way it works. Now come back to the passage. He says then, rise up, O judge of the earth. Just as he said, of shine forth. That means you can find this back in other songs where he's saying, God, arise! 
Come, make war on your enemies. Ooh, this was just a lot of militaristic uh, thought that's associated with these imprecations. God, you're at war with your enemies. You are. You are. Fighting them. I mean literally fighting them. That's the way David related to God was through what it required of him in hand-to-hand combat. But God, rise up. We need you. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked... Now watch him, see? See the step, stair step? How long shall the wicked exalt? Now, this is a cry for relief here. This is a, you, one of the features of these lament psalms is like this. How long? How long? More on that later. But he says, how long? They pour out their arrogant words. What do you see? The psalm is dealing with the issues of oppression and injustice. That's what's got him torqued. That's what's got him torqued. And they, all evildoers boast, they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Look what they're doing to us. Have done. Want to do. They kill the widow and the sojourner. Murder the fatherless. They say, and they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. They blaspheme God. He doesn't see and He doesn't care what we do. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when you will, will you be wise? How can God put up with this and maintain His own honor? That's what's really working on the psalmist. Come on, Lord. Come on. Come on. He who planted the ear. Does he not hear? He who formed the eye. Does he not see? So the psalmist is looking at really these who would, would strut in their arrogant way before God Almighty. And the problem is, is that they're really stupid. They're fools. He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge. You can see his is the creator. See what he what he builds into the theology here. He's creator, he's the God of providence, he controls all circumstances, and he's the God, he knows everything. That's quite settling. Very satisfying. Oh yes. Who are these nations? Who are these peoples? Who are these organizations? Who are they to dare put their fist in the face of God? Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Now the word blessed, it's, a, it's not the word barak. We get our word baraka, you know, the word blessing. This is ashray. And it's a little hard to get around because sometimes there are those who insist, well, it has to be translated happy. Happy, happy, happy. <laughs> well... Oh, yes, in a sense, if you will understand this, that it is happiness in the sense that all aspects of you as a person, that is your being, every area of your life is, to some degree, it's informed by biblical truth. So it's that happy, I would say, enjoying well-being based on the fact that God is speaking through his word to all the areas of your life. All right. So then, 
Give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. They dig in their own pit by their evil deeds and will fall into it. Until. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. Oh, I read this. I'd been studying it for several weeks. And I read it to Beth out loud yesterday. We were... You know, two teachers living together, they compare notes. And I read it, and she says, that sounds like a longing for the coming kingdom. I said, bingo, you got it. This is what's here. The kingdom to come, the kingdom to come. And we are not exhausting that reality in this age. I have friends who believe that this is the kingdom, and I go, oh, (laughs) the kingdom will come when Messiah returns. All right, quick on. Who rises up, now notice that gets very personal here. See the little for me, for me. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? Ah, he's coming back now to some imprecation. He wants vindication, Lord. Show up, do something. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would, would soon have lived in the land of silence. I mean, he'd have died. He couldn't praise God on his feet on earth when he died. It doesn't mean you don't praise God in heaven. It's just the way Old Testament believers looked at life and death. When I thought my foot slips, thanks Psalm 73, here we are. <laughs> it's in there. Your steadfast love, O oh Lord, help me up. That's our old word, chesed. That's this God's love for those who are in covenant with him. He loves you. He's committed to you. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. That's a sweet one. I know somebody here, this is one of their favorite go-to verses. It's a good one. And that he was nearly overwhelmed with despair, but uh, viewing all of the evil and the just the, the braggarts and evil on parade, Can wicked rulers be allied against you, those who frame injustice by statute? Corruption, unjust decrees, kings, those in leadership who make awful decisions and lead the people astray. Could have been within Israel. They had plenty of those kinds of kings who really came along one after the other and messed things up, violated covenant. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Look what they do. But the Lord has become my stronghold. And my God, the rock of my refuge, he will bring back on them. You reap, you reap what you sow. He'll bring back on them their iniquity. Wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Now, all right, let's move through it. And here's what we'll do. If you counted, there are six stanzas. And I'm going to honor those stanzas with my following statements. And what we and I hope you'll see the significance of them. But just this reminder. Well, I will tell you, talk about a bucket list. If you've got a bucket list you're looking for things to get angry about, it's got to be about full. There's a lot to be angry about. The events of this past week have just caused a volcanic eruption of anger. It's everywhere. It's palpable. The shootings. Innocent people shot, killed. It's awful. And then you've got this virtual parade of moral fools who strut across our nation's stage, stage, 
The platoons of the arrogant carry their flags above them. Supreme Court of the United States and same-sex marriage. Hmm. Abortionists dancing and crying in victory over the increased freedom to kill the unborn, unborn infants. The military lists transgender ban and removes man, the word man, from job titles. There's a California a bill in the legislature that threatens the existence of Christian higher education. California is considering legalizing recreational marijuana in, in November. And some of the most important moral questions of our time are being cited by the Supreme Court. Scary. Enough to make you angry. And but lest we think it's all out there, let me tell you about the church. I can't say much, you know, at time, but I read an interesting article about Joel Bell's. It was in the July 9th uh, issue of World Magazine, an article entitled Disappearing Evangelicals. And he said, you know, we look around and we see the mess we're in. And he's asked the question, why don't we see some evangelicals who are in places of influence and, I mean, in, not just in the area of politics, he starts there. Where, where are they? People who stand up and speak up. Everybody's ducking for cover. Where are we? Where are we? With all our schools, radio, Christian radio stations, all the churches, all the numbers, where is that robust number? Men and women who know God and not ashamed of Him and His moral righteous law and are kind and compassionate and have wisdom in their ways. I'll tell you, this is what our nation longs for and we don't, we don't see it coming. All right, so there it is. There it is. Now let's walk. Here we are. I would say to you that that first stanza speaks this way. Verses 1 to 3. That a passion, the light of God's righteous, God's, the light of God's righteous judgment will dawn after the long night of evil. It will. You see this passion for God's glory. It's not going to tolerate a benign attitude towards sin wherever it's found. Let me tell you, if things that are happening that are wrong and defy God's moral law, and if you aren't dealing with some kind of anger, I'm going to rush to qualify that. If you're just going on, you better check your spiritual pulse. Is it beating well? Oh, but you say you just want to get us, we want to get us mad. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what this psalm's about. It's about what do you do with oppression and injustice when you see it and it riles you up wherever you see it. What do you do with it? That's where we are in Psalm 94. Here's what we do. But in the first place, don't think it's God's business. Let Him take care of it. Lord, You will. And don't think for a moment, don't have any suspicion that God is indifferent to what wicked people do. You can feel this in the psalm, the tension. There is time, uh, uh, Patrick said it in, as he was leading us, when justice is delayed, what did he say? It doesn't mean it's denied. There is that delay period. You find it in the Bible. So we should be, well, we should be taught. I mean, coached in this. You know, Israel went into Egypt. And things really got bad. How long? 400 years. And then God shows up and says in the narrative, He says He saw the suffering of His people. Wait a minute. 
one day began to get worse over a period of 400 years. Joseph, you know, in prison, he does what God wants him to do, honors God, interprets a dream, and then the Bible marks it out in Genesis 41.1. Two years passed. <laughs> nothing, nothing, two years. Oh, there are a lot of others. Oh, I should mention the one in Revelation 6 and verse 10, that fifth seal. Now, these are glorified saints. They're by the throne. They're saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those on the earth? All right. So the moral corruption in our society should move us. Move us toward God. Pray to Him. Then secondly, the wicked flaunt their arrogance while oblivious to spiritual realities. See that in verses 4 to 7. Belligerent. Brazen in their defiance of God's laws. Now I'll tell you one thing that it gets to me. I say, Lord, this is not right. I feast on a lot of news. Now that's, there's, there are problems that come with that. Beth can tell you what they are, some of them. She's trying to read the paper and I'm bugging her with things that are coming that are bad in the news. But you know, after, after Omar Mateen shot those 49 people in that nightclub in Orlando, do you know what, you know what some were saying? Some were saying in places of influence and power, you know whose fault it was? It was your fault. Christians. Because you, you sow the seeds of hatred. And it's what you say and it's what you believe that creates a climate for such things. I'm, I'm not kidding you, would I? That's what we do. Now, does that kind of make you want to back up? Kind of make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? Does me. Like what I do? Well, we'll stay with the psalm. That's what we're going to do. Let's go to the next one. Verses 8 through 11. The masquerade of the wicked is unmasked by the questions of the righteous. See these rhetorical questions there? You could circle them in your Bible. God is the creator, he's God of providence, God of knowledge. But you see, in this section here, he speaks, he speaks of God disciplining the nations. Did you pick up on that? Oh my, what a record on that one we have in Scripture. What did God do with Egypt? He took them to the woodshed. What did he do with Assyria? He took them out for a good licking. What did he do with Babylon? They faded away into history, faded away. God judged them. What about the flood of Noah's day? Would you say that might qualify for a really big judgment on the nations as they existed in the pre-flood world? They're the Amorites. Well, the reason he's saying this in the psalm at this point is that God can easily deal with a handful of rebels in his own nation, Israel. He takes care of the big picture. He'd take care of the macro. He can take care of the micro. And so there he is. Four, verses 12 to 15. The hope of final justice stimulates patience among God's people. Verses 12 to 15. At least that's the handle I would choose to put on it. And you notice at this point in verse 12, the tone of the psalm gets quieter. Psalms take you through kind of this emotional up and down and truth carrying it. What are the righteous to think while all this is going on? 
The discipline of the nations. Well, there is just, can we say, the discipline of a hard life. We have stuff we have to deal with. And God reminds us that we live in an evil world. And we, though, live in the school of faith for the righteous. In a hard world, tough stuff. I want to tell you this, when you pray and think through a psalm like this, and you look at the evil in this world, don't forget Nigeria. Do you know those 276 girls that were kidnapped by Boko Haram? Oh, that's off the screen, isn't it? 276 daughters. Moms and dads lost their daughters, carried off into the jungle, into the woods, to be uh, awful thoughts. What they would, and suffer and will suffer. We ought to have that on our prayer list. God help those who are suffering at the hands of the wicked, your people. And it seems, Lord, how long, O oh Lord, how long Christians whose heads are being lopped off with great joy and delight in other places in the world. Verses 16 to 19. Look at this one. I'll put it this way. Life in the winter of a fallen world is made possible by the presence of God. Whoa, this is sweet. So we have this word of personal testimony here. And what he does is he says, Lord, my foot was slipping, but you came to the rescue. Now what he's, I think, is saying at this point is that God stands by his people in the most adverse and difficult times in very practical and real ways. One thing that's been pointed out here is it reminds us of what uh, Paul refers to in 2 Timothy. When he said in verse one fifty, verse four, chapter four and verse ten, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. Uh huh. I think the one implication of this stanza here is that the way God gives His presence makes it known is the coming alongside of one another. Christians, we encourage one another. You're here today. You're here. Just look around. Think about it for a moment. You're going to talk. You're going to go to classes and talk and pray. You're going to, you're going to exchange and engage in conversation. This is one way in which God keeps His people encouraged. Encouraged. Head up. And we come alongside. We find out, oh, you, and we, we're remind, reminded, oh, you're having, that happened this week. Oh, my So we stand alongside of one another. And we've got all these things that can provoke our anger and frustration, all the oppression and injustice in so many ways. And we come together to do what? To build one another up and encourage one another. I'll tell you this. I remember that um, when I was in Guyana, I went there a number of times, Guyana, South America. And the believers, as they came together, this idea of coming together and standing alongside of one another and having outside speakers come in who don't, you know, Guyana's kind of cut off in a lot of ways and communication-wise. And I found out when I went through these <clears throat> imprecation psalms we were studying that there, <clears throat> I saw this response. I, don't see from, I didn't see from audiences in America. I can preach on imprecatory psalms and, oh, okay. But there, whoa, they want to talk about it. You know why? Because they live with the very real 
experience of government being against them. The, one of the worst things you could do in Guyana, they say, is go to the police. That's right. The police are not for you there. I mean, we, um, I'm not trying to create a comparison. And with whatever problems exist in police, uh, uh, in the police force, there, it's just, you don't go to the police. You try to work it out. Somebody breaks in your home or what? I heard some awful stories. Oh, we do need one another to help black and white and red and yellow. We need one another alongside of one another to deal with these things. Not let the evil one get his foot in the door and divide us. All right, six and finally. Verses 20 through 23. All right, we've come full circle. Until the long night of evil is over, the just shall live by faith. Now, I'm picking up a little something from one of the prophets here. I'm picking it up from the book of Habakkuk. I love Habakkuk. And I'll just be brief on that touch, that uh, the prophet is just facing all this awful prospect. Awful. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to, they're going to destroy everything. The temple, the city, they're going to rape, they're going to rob, they're going to destroy. And, you know, and then by the time you get down to chapter 3 and all of that, and, and this is what God tells Habakkuk. I mean, you're listening to Habakkuk pray. He's, he's not preaching. He's, you're listening in on his prayer closet. And then he finally gets to the end. I will choose to rejoice in you. Hua, hua. <laughs> yes. That's what he chooses to do. It's a choice, Lord. I'm going to rejoice in you. And that he says that, Lord, you're my refuge. You see his language there in the psalm. You're my refuge. You're my strength. You're my stronghold, Lord. Oh, and I, would, I can't unpack the whole thing of what faith does here, but faith is in, it's, it, it, it's truth informing our actions, our thoughts, our motives, shaping the contours of our desires, our interests, and so on. It's not some presumptive attitude, but it's motivated and moves along on the basis of what God has said, and we are going to make choices. Lord, I'm going to honor you. And we may be feeling like we're getting knocked from pillar to post and evil is triumphing and people are just saying awful things. Nobody seems to have the diagnosis. Does that trouble you? I listened to, I'm interested in, I read, got up and read the, the, uh, two of the editorials in the HAC this morning. And I, and, and the, I mean, there were some helpful things in there, but I got through I said, oh, is this the best we can do? Oh, thank you, Lord. It's not because we're smart people. It's just because he's given us his word by his grace. But you see those last words? This is where the psalm ends. Wipe them out, Lord. Wipe them out. Now, you know, at this point, if I may, um, God will get his vengeance. Is this the termination, though, of our anger? Is God our hitman? I saw Lukovic in one of the cartoons in the AJC some weeks ago. One of our senators said some things. He was taking an imprecatory psalm and seemed like he might have been using it a bit wrongly. And then Lukovic had this picture. It didn't show God, but the voice coming out of the cloud, Hitman! Is that what this is all about? Well, God is the judge of all the earth. He will judge the wicked for their arrogant rebellion against him and their sins against the righteous. In the meantime, what are we to do? Are we left 
just left with a satisfaction that the bad guys lose and the just, just uh, get the justice they deserve. Sort of like a movie. How many movies go this way? You know, you just get these movies compete with one another to make the surliest, meanest, baddest people they can. And by, you know, halfway through the movie or three quarters, he's like, I said, I got to have some relief here. Could a good guy please show up? So, is that what we're left with here? We know that justice is going to be done and God's going to come and he's going to what they reap, they'll sow. But there is a problem. You know what the problem is? We're the bad guys. Whoa, I thought they were out there. No, we're the bad guys. What about us? We're sinners, all of us. And we're left to, are, are we left to good behavior to get us off the hook of God's justice and judgment? Really, are we? Can good deeds tip the scales in our favor and make us acceptable to God? It won't work. Now let me illustrate. Let me illustrate. Suppose, suppose that it's demanded that in order to get to heaven, it's like a road. There, we'll just say it's a road to heaven. And it demands that we keep all the traffic laws, obey all the road signs, stop signs, speed limit signs, proper lane change, moving over to the left when we see blue lights over in the emergency lane, all the rules, the rules that go with the road. And in order to get to heaven, we got to obey every road sign. We're all in trouble. Okay? I know how you drive. I know how I do. And so, one infraction, and I'm ticketed, and I'm arrested. That's pretty severe. Pretty severe traffic laws and penalties. See, I'm under the curse of the law. That's what happens when you get stopped and you get a ticket. That's a curse. It is. You want some good news? Got it for you. Someone made it all the way. No traffic violations. None. Perfect record. And at the same time, he paid the price for all those who did break the law and violated the traffic rules. You know who that is? You know who that is? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ experienced the curse, the curse of the law for me and you. So therefore, his perfection can become mine. Oh, now let me explain. I don't mean that makes you a perfect person. I mean that in, in coming into God's heaven and being accepted by him, your, his righteousness, his perfection is accepted as, as he, in you. Now, there's some righteousness to take care of and live. <laughs> That's another issue. So God will accept God's Christ's perfect life as mine. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He went all the way, made no traffic violations, paid all the fines though anyway for us who did it. And so here, Christ bore God's law, or He bore the curse 
for breaking the law, and he didn't break that law. And he bore the law's curse and God's condemnation in our place, giving us peace with God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And so guess what? Because of that, by faith in Christ, receiving the gift, guess what? We become good guys. Positionally. Now, don't misunderstand that. I mean, that means you're all sweetness and light and you got good manners. But it does mean that God says, all right, you're one of the good guys. Thank you, Lord. Not because of me. It's because of your grace. And I'm not through. This is the last, but not the least. That's not all. No longer are we God's enemies. We can tell others who are under God's curse how they can be reconciled to God. And that God is eager to forgive and to give them eternal life. Turn the church loose. That's the best response I can think of. Turn the church loose. Turn Christians loose. Recon, the ambassadors of reconciliation. Go forth. Go forth. Lord, as you release us to go in our homes and streets, neighborhoods, and wherever else, grocery stores and banks and all over the place, emails. Oh, Lord, release us as people who are been forgiven and know you because of your grace. Give in Christ's name. Amen.